Hi, I'm Whitney. Welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast with Katie from wellnessmama.com. Today, Katie sits down with Dr. Isabella Wentz, a pharmacist and thyroid specialist who focuses on helping others discover the root cause of their thyroid disease and address the underlying issues to find real results. Isabella has summarized three years of research and two years of testing in her book, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. In this specific episode, they'll be talking about how to actually get a correct diagnosis and what to do when blood tests come back normal, but a person still has symptoms. If you struggle with thyroid problems or suspect that you might, Isabella has offered her comprehensive Overcoming Thyroid Fatigue. It's a guide to help you discover your own root causes. To get the bonus material from this episode, join our community at wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast. Now let's join Katie as she interviews Dr. Isabella about how to get a correct diagnosis for thyroid disease. Welcome, Isabella. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm so excited because you're obviously super qualified in thyroid health, but also I consider you a friend. And I know when we first met, we stayed up really late one night talking about thyroid health and just health in general and blogging and so many different things um, and kind of got to know each other. But the part that really struck me when we first met was your own story, which I think just was amazing hearing your own journey with thyroid health and all the things you discovered yourself. Um, So for any listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you or who haven't read your blog or heard your story, can you kind of walk through your own journey with thyroid disease and, and what you learned? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I just had so much fun hanging out and connecting with you as well. Just want to throw that in there. But um, I, I basically, my thyroid symptoms probably started sometime in my freshman year in college. I used to be this bright eyed and bushy tailed kid. And I always had a ton of energy. I was always, you know, playing sports and working out and, and, you know, studying and working after school and doing all kinds of, you know, fun things in high school. And then during my freshman year in college, I ended up with mono, which is the Epstein bar, which is a condition caused by the Epstein bar virus. And after that, I just never fully recovered. I remember I was just so exhausted all the time that one one day I actually slept through a final exam during um, my first year in undergrad. It was a chemistry final exam, which was very very important for me to make sure I got a really good grade in that, so I could get into pharmacy school. And unfortunately, I slept through that exam, and I uh, luckily the professor let me come in late and retake it and whatnot. But it was just very, very bizarre because I went from this very highly energetic person to somebody that just needed to sleep maybe 12 to 14 hours each night. And as time went on, um, eventually it was discovered that I had Epstein-Barr virus, but I had been recovering from it. I got a little bit better, but I never quite recovered my previous amount of energy. And so, um, you know, I would go to doctors every every year and ask for a physical and say, I'm really, really tired all the time. I have to sleep a lot. And they check me for anemia. They check my thyroid. They check all of these things and they just say everything was normal. So fast forward to when I actually graduated from pharmacy school and I kind of, um, kind of figured out that not all doctors were created equally. <laughs> And I learned that maybe there were some doctors that were going to be a bit more comprehensive. 
And I started again kind of asking questions about my health. At at that point, my symptoms had also progressed. So not only was I tired and sleeping for 12 hours each night, but I also had acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome. I had hair loss. I had joint pain in both arms. I was diagnosed with bilateral carpal tunnel, which made it really tough for me to, to work because a lot of the things I had to do were on a computer. And I also had really like debilitating anxiety like I, I started to have panic attacks, which I never used to have. You know, you know me, I'm pretty kind of, I'm pretty laid back and just very mellow. And that was something brand new to me. So my husband would go out running and I, you know, he'd tell me that he'd be back. And if he wasn't back in 15 minutes, I'd, I'd start, you know, pretty much calling around and making sure he was okay or wondering if he left me for, you know, another woman or some, something crazy must have happened because, um, you know, why was he gone for so long? And I just had these very unrealistic intrusive thoughts that I never had before. I had um, all these symptoms that I never had before. And and I was still in my mid-20s at the time before, um, you know, and and just felt like my my whole body was falling apart. At that point, um, eventually I found a doctor that was was willing to do some comprehensive testing, and I was found to have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so, um, at you know, at first I was relieved that I had Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition, because I thought finally I could start taking medications. You know, I'm, I'm a pharmacist by training, so I knew that there were medications one could take to get that balanced. But a part of me was also kind of scared because I thought, okay, well, I'm only in my 20s. Why do I have an autoimmune condition? And why did I develop this condition that happens later on in life generally? And so that was kind of how I got on my journey of trying to figure out if there were any things that I had done to potentially trigger my condition, if there was anything I can do to reverse my condition or, you know, prevent the progression of the condition. And and that's kind of how I became a Hashimoto's expert slash human guinea pig was just through looking at different research and trying out different things on myself in an effort to, to get myself better with the condition. Yeah. Your story sounds so much like my own, especially I feel like that moment of like, you know, something's wrong, but the tests come back normal and you go to the doctor and they say you're fine or they tell you it's all in your head. And I think a lot of people have had that experience and it's so frustrating because when you know something is not right in your own body, but you can't find answers, that's a really, really frustrating place to be. Um, So obviously, like fast forward through your journey, you obviously had discovered some things that helped you and now you've actually written a book about it, which I highly recommend. It's a really comprehensive book, but I'd love to delve into some of those specifics that you talk about in the book and that um, actually some of my readers had questions that they wanted to get you to help them find answers for. So one question that came up a lot and that you uh, do talk about on your blog, I think, and also in your book is actually getting to that point of getting a, a correct diagnosis. So can you talk about maybe if someone has some of those same symptoms that you did or that I did and they suspect there's a problem, how do you go about starting to find answers or get a diagnosis for that? Yeah, absolutely. And and Katie, should we talk about some of the symptoms you had? Because everybody can kind of present a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. I, so you mentioned yours being triggered by a virus and I feel like mine was triggered probably more by stress. And I had several, um, pretty intense life issues that happened in a short span of time and I wasn't sleeping. Um, and at that point in my life in college, definitely wasn't eating very healthy either. And then I think when I got pregnant with my first child after college, that kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think you hear about that a lot with like the hormonal aspect and how obviously with the endocrine system, all hormones are um, intertwined. And so I think that was part of it for me. But the symptoms I struggled with were kind of some of the common thyroid symptoms of feeling cold all the time, 
and I had some hair loss, especially in my eyebrows in the beginning. Um, and my nails were very brittle and just like having trouble losing weight after baby, which again, that's one of those things that doctors say, well, that's pretty normal. Um, everyone has that. It's nothing to worry about. Um, and like, like digestive disturbance is not as severe as what I know you had, but just, um, I felt like I, my digestion wasn't working correctly and I would have to take stuff to like, feel like to get things moving. Um, but then sometimes it would also be too much. And so, um, I just, I felt like I had this whole array of symptoms that doctors kept telling me were normal. And it actually took me going through eight doctors before I found one, um, actually who we both know, Dr. Christensen, who mm-hmm. was able to even just look at me before he did blood tests and he was able to pretty much guess what it was. And then blood tests confirmed it. Um, but it was so frustrating that period because I knew something was wrong and I kept telling them something was wrong and they kept telling me, no, your normals are okay. They're a little low, but they're pretty normal. Um, nothing to worry about. We'll just test you again in a couple of years. Um, and so I, I know that frustration all too well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times women will struggle with these symptoms for five years, 10 years before they actually get diagnosed. And, you know, we both know and love Dr. Christensen. I actually lived, um, I, I lived like two or three miles away from his clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, when I was started having thyroid symptoms. And unfortunately, I didn't know him then. Otherwise, I could have been diagnosed much, much sooner. But, you know, when doctors first look at thyroid function in a person, when they first start to check thyroid function, they're going to run a screening test. That test is known as the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone test. And this test is really, really great for picking up really advanced cases of hypothyroidism or even advanced cases of Hashimoto's when the thyroid is no longer working, that TSH number is going to be elevated, indicating that there's very low amounts of thyroid hormone in the body. But the test is not ideal for probably people within the first five to 10 years of Hashimoto's because the test is, is um, it, you know, it can fluctuate. So in the early stages of Hashimoto's, you may have a swing from having that number being a little bit too high to a little bit too low to then normal. And this can happen, you know, I just from a day-to-day basis where a person will have be tested one day and their TSH will be normal. The next day, like you, you know, the doctor will say, oh, it's a little bit off, but it's, it's nothing to worry about. And, um, and the other thing too is when the scientists first determined the reference ranges for that test, they ended up putting up, pulling a bunch of people's blood. And this blood, unfortunately, had people, this, had people in there who, who actually had thyroid disease. So the reference range was pretty lax for that pool of blood where they were saying that, dose, that numbers of TSH as high as, you know, 8 or even 10 were considered normal. Whereas, you know, most women feel best with a TSH somewhere between 0.5 and 2. And most healthy people without thyroid disease that are, you know, in their 20s and 30s should have a TSH somewhere around 1. So, you know, like you, at one point I had a TSH of 4.5 and I was sleeping for 12 hours a night, losing my hair, sleeping under two blankets in Southern California. And my doctor told me that was normal. And so, we, you know, two, two big problems with that test is oftentimes it's going to be... Uh, reference range may not be strict enough depending on what lab your doctor is using. So anything above a 2.5 would be a red flag. I always tell people to get a copy of their own test results. And the other issue is in the early stages of Hashimoto's that TSH might actually look normal, but you might still have a lot of the, the symptoms, especially some of the mood symptoms, fatigue, as well as 
problems with putting um, with losing weight. So um, the other tests I recommend are going to be thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and these antibodies basically mean that your immune system has begun to recognize the thyroid gland as a foreign invader and is launching an immune attack on the thyroid gland. The two antibodies in Hashimoto's are thyroglobulin antibodies as well as thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And, um, you know, different studies will say that about 80 to 90% of people will, with Hashimoto's will have them elevated. Um, and a lot of times that is going to be the test that's going to figure out whether or not you have Hashimoto's. These antibodies can be elevated for up to a decade before you see a change in TSH. Um, some people, they may have something called seronegative Hashimoto's. So they may not have any thyroid antibodies, but they might have the changes consistent with Hashimoto's on their thyroid gland. And the way to test for that is actually with a thyroid ultrasound. So I know I've seen women who have said that they didn't think they had thyroid problems. They didn't think they had Hashimoto's. And once they got some more comprehensive testing, they were able to uncover that, that really they did have the condition. Yeah. And that's, I think what was so frustrating for me in my own journey is because most doctors are just trained, like you said, that they test TSH, or if you have one who's maybe read some more, they, they'll test T3 or T4 or another variant. But a lot of them don't test the antibodies unless they see something else as a problem. And so I actually, in researching it, had read about like the, how that test can be a lot more accurate for different types of thyroid disease and had asked one of the doctors for it. And he said, well, unless your TSH is elevated, there's no reason to test for that. And it's frustrating looking back because knowing like what you just said and what I've read in your book, um, that's actually not true at all. And I remember being so frustrated and thinking, so really, like, I just have to sit here and get worse and wait till my levels get to a, a bad enough place that they will show up on the regular test before a doctor is going to take me seriously. Um, and that was really frustrating. But that's good to know for anyone listening that that the antibody test can show it at an earlier stage. Um, what about women, though, who have had all these tests and are still, they have all these symptoms, um, but maybe they're, the tests are still looking normal. Is it, at that point, do you think an issue of the ranges or can someone have normal levels and still have the symptoms? Right, so with, um, with the TSH, that can be normal and the person may still have symptoms if they have thyroid antibodies. So that's one option. And then the thyroid antibodies can actually come out normal and the person may still have Hashimoto's based on changes um, that are occurring in their thyroid gland. So the th Hashimoto's is kind of a, one of those things that is, it, what it is, it's basically white blood cell infiltration in the thyroid gland. So when immune cells start taking up residence in the, immune, in, in the thyroid gland, they're, they're not normally supposed to be there. That means that the thyroid gland is under immune system attack. And, you know, sometimes you, many times you'll be able to find that through antibody tests or through thyroid ultrasounds. But sometimes, you know, a person may not may come out normal on all those things. But when you do, uh, it's called a fine needle aspiration, where you take out, put a you know a little needle in somebody's thyroid gland and take out some cells and look under them in a microscope. That will show changes consistent with Hashimoto. So definitely, there's um, different types of diagnostic methods that can be explored. Um, obviously, sticking a little needle into your thyroid gland is not um, the least invasive. So. Uh, much less invasive method would be to do a blood test or an ultrasound. And so some doctors will diagnose a person based on symptoms, but there may be other things that, that look like thyroid disease, such as adrenal dysfunction or even, you know, some of the chronic infections like Lyme 
people may present with thyroid symptoms when they actually have something else too. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that was really interesting to me um, because Dr. Christensen did order an ultrasound when when I first started working with him and it turned out that there were nodules on my thyroid and I was actually really surprised because the blood tests had always been normal. Even though I knew I was having symptoms, I didn't realize um, that there could already be nodules and, and changes in my thyroid at that point. Um, and thankfully those have now um, started to reverse through the treatment I've been doing with him. But That's I was awesome. really, yeah, I was really shocked to find that. Um, so if someone maybe is in the place where I was and you were for that, that time of trying to find a doctor who understands thyroid disease and can test them correctly, um, what would maybe be some interview questions someone would ask a doctor to determine if they're going to understand enough to be able to test correctly? Oh, those are great questions. So, you know, asking, calling the doctor's office and asking them if, if they test for thyroid antibodies, if they, um, what kind of thyroid medications they prescribe. Those are two really good questions that will give you some insight into how the doctor, you know, what, what comfort level they have with the thyroid. Because there's, you know, unfortunately there's specific guidelines for thyroid that I learned about in pharmacy school that are just very, very basic that talk about just using one type of medication and one type of test. But there's so much more beyond that. And, you know, doctors like Dr. Christensen, who specialize in this, um, have a whole arsenal of tools to, to look at for, from different medications to use for people with thyroid disorders to looking at um, different lab testing, as well as looking at different root causes. Another thing I like to ask about is looking at whether or not the, the doctor has a root cause approach. So I definitely recommend, um, you know, for diagnosis, you can see pretty much any type of doctor that is willing to do the, the advanced testing. But you also want to work with somebody who's trained in functional medicine to start looking at some of the root causes of, um, of the thyroid conditions. And one trick, it's an old pharmacist trick, is basically to work with your compounding pharmacy. You know, a lot of people have local ones in their area. And talk to the pharmacy staff there or pharmacists and ask them which, uh, which are the best doctors for thyroid that they're aware of because usually those doctors will be familiar with a variety of different treatment options, including compounded thyroid medications. That's an excellent point, too. And ironically, the next guest I'm going to have on the podcast for next month is a local pharmacist where I live who is a big fan of yours and um, who does – she's found a doctor now that – She's kept giving information to, and he's gone to conferences, and they've both learned a lot more in depth about hormones and especially thyroid. And uh, yeah, so she's been an excellent resource for a lot of people here, and that's a great point because I don't think everyone thinks to go to a pharmacist first, um, but sometimes they can point you in the right direction. Absolutely, what a, sounds like a really great guest. Yeah, I'm excited for her. Um, so we've we've kind of mentioned in passing some of the different types of thyroid disease, but can we go through and define those for people who may be trying to figure out what they might have or what their symptoms would look like for different? Um, so obviously there's hypothyroid, hyperthyroid, and Hashimoto's, which we've mentioned all three of those. Can you kind of walk us through the differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically um, hypothyroid is a state of not having enough thyroid hormone. Um, this is also known as an underactive thyroid, where the person does not produce enough thyroid hormones. And some of the common symptoms of that are going to be, you know, hair loss, fatigue, cold intolerance, eyebrow loss, difficulty, losing weight, um, you know, a lot of times depression, um, fatigue, that's kind of a big one for that. 
And that is going to be, you know, kind of like an advanced form of Hashimoto's. Something, you know, worldwide hypothyroidism, the primary cause of it is due to iodine deficiency. So iodine is a nutrient that's required for the production of thyroid hormones. Um, and unfortunately, this is no longer the case in the rest of the world or in the westernized world. So um, in the westernized world, iodine deficiency is no longer the primary cause of hypothyroidism because we started adding iodine to the salt supply with all of the public health measures. And now in the Western world, Hashimoto's is actually the primary cause of hypothyroidism. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition that results in the breakdown of thyroid tissue to the point where the person can no longer produce thyroid hormone. And that's going to be responsible for anywhere from 90 to 97% of cases of hypothyroidism or a sluggish thyroid in the Western world. With grave, with hyperthyroidism, this is a condition that is also known as an overactive thyroid where you have too much thyroid hormone being um, produced or supplied to the body. And some of the symptoms that are commonly reported with that are going to be um, palpitations, excess sweating, excess, um, you know, a lot of anxiety, potentially tremors, um, excess weight gain. And I kind of like to think of it as a speeding up process where the person, you know, oftentimes they may feel irritable, agitated. They're not going to be able to sleep. They're going to be sweating and they kind of feel like they're on, you know, amphetamines or something like that. And that, you know, can be very, very distressful feeling. And you'll also potentially have, you know, hair loss. Um, you're definitely going to have either fatigue or just kind of agitation, and some people may have a protrusion of their eyes. So if you've ever seen a person whose eyes seem to protrude a little bit more, that can be due to um, hyperthyroidism. Primary cause of that is Graves' disease. So this is also an autoimmune condition that happens to um, attack a different part of the thyroid gland. And what it basically happens is the thyroid is no longer able to regulate its thyroid hormone production. So that's going to be the primary cause. Other types of causes may be due to excess thyroid medications. And those are pretty much most of the thyroid conditions that we deal with. I would say majority of people are, are going to present with hypothyroidism. And that is caused by Hashimoto's. Gotcha. And you said in the early stages of Hashimoto's, or even I've seen it in some other stages, you can kind of fluctuate between hyper and hypo. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is known as um, Hashitoxicosis where in the initial stages, what's, what's happening is a person's immune system will be, will be breaking down thyroid tissue and, a, and thyroid hormone will get rushed into the bloodstream, causing swings of thyroid hormone going up and going down. So people might have transient hyperthyroidism and then the hormones get cleared out of the circulation and then they'll have symptoms of hypothyroidism. And, you know, unfortunately, this can often be misdiagnosed as an anxiety disorder. In my case, I had, you know, the panic attacks. Some people have been misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I've unfortunately even seen some people who were misdiagnosed with psychotic disorders and hospitalized um, in the early stages of Hashimoto's because of this um, transient hyperthyroidism followed by hypothyroidism. And, you know, it, it just definitely feels the first person can definitely feel like they're on a roller coaster and feel like they're losing their mind. Yeah, wow. So you mentioned that. It, while it didn't used to be the case, uh, Hashimoto's is currently the largest form of thyroid disease that we have in the Western world. Why do you think we're seeing a rise in Hashimoto's, whereas we used to see more just hypothyroidism? Um, so that's a really great question. And one of the reasons is because, um, you know, when 
public health officials realized that a lot of people were hypothyroid due to iodine deficiency, they began a salt um, iodinization program where they began to add iodine to the salt supplies in various countries. When the iodine was added to the salt supply, most people became iodine sufficient and thus people, um, you know, were no longer having these iodine deficiency hypothyroidism. So this is kind of the good part about it. But what we all unfortunately learned kind of the hard way is that iodine seems to also be an environmental trigger for Hashimoto's. So it, it's a Goldilocks nutrient. It's got a narrow therapeutic index, which means that dosages of it too low are going to be problematic for the thyroid, leading to iodine deficiency hypothyroid. And then dosages that are going to be too high are going to be problematic for the thyroid, potentially leading to autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, the mechanism behind that is thought to be basically the iodine needs to be processed by the thyroid gland. And whenever it's processed, there's a chemical reaction that takes place that results in um, hydrogen peroxide production. The hydrogen peroxide, you know, if you've ever poured it on a wound or poured it on anywhere, you'll see kind of how it fizzes up and kind of starts to take up space. Well, you know, on wounds, it's not as big of a deal. But when you release that inside of a thyroid gland, um, it doesn't really have anywhere to spread and go. So the hydrogen peroxide can actually cause tissue damage. It's known as a reactive oxygen species. And um, basically, when you have too much iodine conversion, you end up with all of this ex excess hydrogen peroxide, which can damage the thyroid gland and then cause immune cells to come into the thyroid gland to try to repair the damage. And at some point, we're not quite sure how this happens, but at some point, the immune system gets confused and it, it's in the thyroid. The immune cells are in the thyroid initially fixing it, but eventually it starts becoming into a pattern of the immune system actually attacking the thyroid gland. So that's kind of the, the thought behind the mechanism and, and things that exacerbate this, this um, hydrogen peroxide production are going to be selenium deficiency, which is also another environmental trigger for Hashimoto's. Um, there's a lot of different things out there too. So um, specifically, you know, looking at radiation or looking at different types of toxins in our environment, they've definitely been implicated in causing increased rates of thyroid damage and thyroid antibodies. So I, um, I grew up about seven hours away from Chernobyl, the nuclear disaster. And like, you know, potentially some of my thyroid issues started when I was three years old and exposed to that, um, nuclear disaster as, as children who were closer to, uh, the nuclear fallout would have higher rates of thyroid antibodies. So I know they measured, one city that was two hours away and the kids had 20 percent of the kids had thyroid antibodies versus another city that was, you know, on, on the other part in another part of distant part of Russia ended up having, you know, just a small percentage of thyroid antibodies in the same kind of children group who were seemingly genetically similar and around the same age, but just further away from the radiation and the nuclear uh, fallout. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And I didn't even actually know that you had grown up there. So that could have been something that kind of was an underlying issue for you. And then maybe the mono was just really exacerbated it at that point in your life. Yeah, it, it's kind of a perfect storm of events that lines up to create autoimmune disease. And a lot of times we'll see that people will have the genetic predisposition, then they'll have some sort of a trigger. 
And then another part is going to be um, intestinal permeability. So somewhere along the way, you know, a person perhaps from the diet that they're eating or from an infection they pick up, they may have the intestinal permeability and that somehow leads to immune system dysregulation. And, you know, it's, it's possible that I've had this my whole life and that just during um, college, the mono actually kind of exacerbated it. So there's different, there's triggers and there's also exacerbators that can, that can worsen the condition. And definitely the Epstein-Barr virus has been found to worsen Hashimoto. So in people who already had Hashis and then got the Epstein-Barr virus or the Epstein-Barr virus reactivated, you'd see a higher production in th- thyroid antibodies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Moms Podcast. To get the bonus from the episode, as well as a content library of free health resources, join the community at wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast.